Well, we are stepping into verses 13 and following of the Gospel of Luke, these resurrection stories that are so rich and wonderful to us. I hope that you feel that you know, that you understand that there is no day like this day that we're studying here in the Gospel of Luke. This is the day on which the Son of God, raised from the dead, constituted the Lord of all, is walking upon the face of this earth. It's glorious that the the Lord of glory would become human, become a little baby. I was watching Jack after worship this morning and standing by the picnic table, and his dad was saying, loves to stand, doesn't like to walk yet, doesn't take his first step. Jesus, as a little baby, took his first step in humiliation. Now he takes his first step in his exaltation. He is the Lord of all. And this is such a rich passage, a rich time. No day like this first resurrection day, this Easter Sunday. There's something so mysteriously rich about it. You know, Paul would write later how in Christ and his resurrection, life and immortality has been brought to light. But Paul is speaking from the perspective of of looking back upon all of these things. He had seen the Lord in his glory and his brilliance shining greater than the sun. That's not what's happening here. This is the dawn of the new covenant age. And there is this unrepeated and unrepeatable mixture of the darkness and mists of of, of misunderstanding what had taken place, now retreating slowly before the face of the risen Christ. And how rich the tapestry of these, of these gospels, how Jesus reveals himself to Mary early in the morning, and how he reveals himself to these two, and we'll see later, he reveals himself to the eleven and appears to them in the upper room. And further on down the line, he appears to, in, in Galilee as well. So from the angels and the women and the apostles, with Peter in particular, in verses 1 through 12, we come to the first appearance of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. And he appears to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. We are uncertain as to where Emmaus is, but we know that it's seven miles away from Jerusalem. We don't know which direction. We're not clear exactly where this place is. And that's a little bit unusual because the geography of the Holy Land is is pretty pretty solid, and we know pretty much where all these places are, but here we're a a bit stumped. We do not know who the second disciple with this man Cleopas is, and we don't really know who Cleopas is, even though we know his name. We don't know why they left the city on that day when so much was, as it were, still up in the air. All this turmoil, all these questions that they're going to be talking about uh, during their journey. And in fact, in these various elements that we've just mentioned, we are kind of in the midst and not quite certain about all these details. What we do know is what was on their heart and what was on their lips and what they talked about and what they debated, what they discussed. That we do know, as the Lord here then graciously joins them, and that is where we begin. We learn from their speech how low they felt. You can't read these verses and some of the things that are said about their emotional makeup, their attitude, their mindset without feeling. It's like there's different mood changes, different colors changing in the passage of this lively discussion. 
from sadness and gloom. When Jesus asks his first question, they just stop. And they're sad. It just stands them up. And then to surprise that this stranger coming apparently from the same direction from Jerusalem is oblivious to what had happened to Jesus the Nazarene. And then he speaks about their, we had thought that he was the redeemer, some kind of redeemer. Again, we don't know exactly what was in their mind. They still had some kind of temporal redemption, probably in their thinking that he was going to do something grand, something great, something to help the whole nation of Israel up and out of its dilapidated state. But our hopes have been dashed. So the first point here is to take notice of their conversing about what had happened to Jesus the Nazarene, Jesus the Christ, Jesus whom they say was a great prophet and did such wonderful things. They, that, there was much that deeply troubled them about what had transpired, much that disturbed them that they did not understand. And we'll say more on that in a moment, but we've already said a lot about this. It's so difficult for us to understand what must have been going through the minds of the disciples to see Jesus crucified, see Jesus arrested and then put on trial and mistreated and taken to the cross and there expire. You would be expecting every moment, this has got to stop. This does not fit. And it's difficult to really feel the full weight of that avalanche that hit their souls. And after his burial, they must have been just walking around like numb zombies about what had taken place. And that's these two disciples. But now, on that first morning's news, they hear something from the women. They hear from the disciples that the tomb was now empty. So here they had opened up to each other about the things of the Lord. Even though they were, they were just so surprised at these events, they don't just throw their hands up in frustration and say, let's not even talk about it. This is a mess. And this, to me, is quite remarkable, given their circumstances. Here, they're hearing about angels. They're hearing from the women who witnessed it. They hear about the, the disciples who ran to the tomb. Everything that we've already covered in verses 1 through 12. And we can hardly understand this setting within the skin of these witnesses. But the point to be made here is that they talk still about the dilemma of a dead Savior. How could he be dead? How can he be gone? Do you get that? How wrong it is, in a sense, in the direction that Jesus would die. This is against all that they knew and felt about him. This one who is the the, the king, the savior, he is the giver of life. He is the one who made, made the broken whole. He made the lame to walk, made the blind to see. He restored life wherever he went. It was as if wherever he went, life flowed from behind him. And this prince of life now is dead. We should join them somewhat. How could the prince of life die. Death does not befit him. He who is holy, harmless, and undefiled, death has no hold upon him. This is not some normal process or step in life. It's a step out of joint. It is broken, and these disciples feel it. What has happened? And yet, here we hear these stories this morning. 
And so it is with all those in Christ. Death is not for us. The grave is swallowed up by Christ as we now know. We should shiver when we um, attend funerals and we hear words like, well, death is just a part of life. Death is normal. Death is to be expected when every part of our created being cries out against that. Death is not something we look at and say, yeah, that's normal. It's bizarre for people to say that. Death is against every fiber of our being, even though as a curse, we deserve death. In his underread and underappreciated brilliant piece, The Pilgrim's Regress. How many of you have read The Pilgrim's Regress? Good for you. What an awesome work that is. C.S. Lewis has, in the beginning of it, an uncle who is, um, his time has come to die. And the practice of the funeral was the person who was to die is going off to the place of death. And he is supposed to wear a mask that has a smile upon it on the way to his funeral. And Lewis has it that the mask, he, he stumbles and the mask uh, slips and the, uh, the hero of the story gets a peek underneath and he sees underneath the mask, uh, he sees the dread and the anguish of the prospect of going to death. Death is unnatural to us. That's not the natural state in which we were created. We were made for life. Here are sin, and here is the prince of life. And they feel this. How could this one, who we believe was sent from heaven as some kind of a redeemer, how could he have died? So here these two are trying to piece things together. They are conversing with one another about the things of God. And so should we. We have these hard nuts to crack mentally. We may find more of Christ with us as they did when we are conversing one another about the things of Christ. How much do the things of the Lord fill our conversations? One of the writers that I read and studied for this, for this message speaks about how much frivolous talk is found among Christians. We're talking about things that don't matter, things that don't count We ought to be following the pattern of these disciples, even though confused about many things, still seeking uh, to speak about the things of the Lord. This is in some ways a fulfillment of Malachi chapter 3, when it says that those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepare my own possession And I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. So let us be known by our speech of our love for the things of God. Um, We know what the Bible says is found in many words. Let our words be filled with Christ. So we move on now to the Lord joining them in their conversation and the interchange that begins to take place between them. And it says as he comes to uh, approach them and travel with them in verse 15, that in verse 16, their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. Man, that's kind of dramatic, isn't it? You're going, here's Jesus. Oh, he's going to appear to his disciples. But they don't appear to understand his appearance. They see him, but they don't see him. They did not recognize him. Why? Now, it is interesting. It's true that in Mark chapter 16, the Lord appears in another form. 
There's some kind of ability in his resurrected body to be able to pass through walls and somehow his form, his visage, perhaps could change in some remarkable way. But that does not seem to be the case here. It says here that their eyes were mysteriously hindered from seeing. And later in verses 30 and 31, it says that their eyes were then opened and they recognized him when his giving thanks for the bread triggered something in their thinking. The Spirit used that to open their eyes to see and to recognize him. While they were ignorant of who this stranger is with them, a greater ignorance is seen in their not grasping the scriptures of how the Christ must suffer and glory follow in his resurrection. And this whole conversation precipitates Jesus about to say, Oh, foolish men, oh, slow of heart to believe. I believe that William J. is too hard on these disciples in his comments. He rebukes them for even leaving Jerusalem in the first place. He says, if you're in this turmoil and this, these, these, these great acts of God have taken place, why would you leave Jerusalem? And he doesn't cut them any slack. But J.C. Ryle, I think, is superior. He notes the deep ignorance that still clings to them and no doubt the reprehensible nature of it. But at the same time, there is grace in these disciples hidden under much intellectual ignorance. Uh, He uh, says uh, uh, this word on this passage, which bears repeating. He says, uh, clear and accurate knowledge is a most useful thing but it is not absolutely necessary to salvation and may even be possessed without grace. You may have a very sharp intellect and yet not be saved. A deep sense of sin, a humble willingness to be saved in God's way, a teachable readiness to give up our own prejudices when a more excellent way is shown. These are the principal things. These things the two disciples seem to possess, and therefore our Lord went with them and guided them into all truth. It's an amazing thing, Jesus coming up, and no doubt he knows that he is going to be hidden from them. And so in this, he looks a little bit like Joseph in the Old Testament to his brethren. Joseph, who hid his identity as their brother, who had been mistreated. And yet Jesus comes and acts like a brother and a savior and a Lord to them as we see this passage unfold. Our last consideration tonight in our shorter message this evening, how their unbelief is giving way to the reality of the resurrection of Christ. All of these questions, these things that disturb them, that um, they're talking about is going to give way when they realize that Jesus is alive. Why did Jesus not reveal himself sooner? Why did he not come up to them and say, here I am. I'm your redeemer. I'm alive from the dead. No, no. He sees the amazement in the report of the women in their eyes and words and hearts. He hears the report of the angels sinking in and the confirmation from Peter and the others who saw the empty tomb. He sees them with these pieces of the puzzle. But the one biggie that is missing is, but him they did not see, the last line in our passage here tonight. But him they did not see in verse 24. And understand, here is a thread that that runs throughout all the resurrection narratives. Do you see where Jesus is pointing all the time, where the angels point? Well, we're directed about the question of Christ's resurrection. To prove the resurrection of the Lord, Jesus, the resurrected Lord, is about to point 
to the word of God. He doesn't say, behold my hands, behold my feet, like he's going to do to Thomas. But behold the scriptures, as we saw this morning. Look to the Bible. Oh, you who are slow to believe all that was written by Moses and by the prophets. The words spoken to the rich man in hell come to mind at the end of Luke 16. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. We should believe in the resurrection. We should believe in angels. We should believe in the fullness of our Savior who is mighty to save. But all things are brought to us through what we heard this morning through the living word of the Spirit of God. The Lord knows that unless the word comes into our life and breathes life into our deadness, we will believe nothing. Even if Jesus is standing in front of us, we will refuse to believe. We will refuse to trust unless the Holy Spirit brings the truth of the word across to us. And thankfully, these disciples are about to learn. And that's where the Savior takes us in the next breath as he takes us from their stumbling about to hear the message of the Old Testament, which they should have been believing all along. Let us close in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for teaching these disciples and teaching us through them. We bless you. We thank you, Lord, for your your clearing up our thoughts, uh, our vision, our view, that you give eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe. It's a gift of God. And so, Lord, that leads us, the word of God leads us all the more to prayer, to cry out to you night and day for changes in our lives and growth and grace and conformity to Christ and readiness for glory. Help us, Lord, to keep our minds fixed upon things above where our Savior is. Help us, Lord, not to stumble over your word. Help us, Lord, to seek you according to the Bible and to uh, walk with you all the days of our life. We bless you and thank you for this resurrection morning. When you swallowed up uh, death and victory, you arose from the grave triumphant over all things and all principalities and powers and might and dominion. Everything has been placed beneath your feet that not only in this age, but in the age to come, that you would have that name that is above every name, that name that is worthy of all honor and glory, exaltation and worship. We bow, Lord, before you tonight, thankful that you speak to us in your word. Continue, Lord, to remove the scales from our eyes. Help us to banish, to see the darkness of ignorance banished from our thinking. And help us to conform our thoughts to you. Help us, Lord, to beware of this world that seeks to conform us to itself. But rather, help us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds to those things that count, that count forever, to that world that is above. Lord, bless us. As we go our separate ways tonight, watch over and keep us, keep our feet as we walk, not away from Jerusalem, but to that heavenly Jerusalem, as you, Lord, walk with us. And we thank you for your fellowship. In your name we pray. Amen.